Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I'm your host for this show and I'm joined as always by my good friend Luke Boggs. How are you doing, Luke? I'm doing all right. How are you, Kyle? Doing all right. Uh, we are coming up close to the end of session. Um, we are recording this on Thursday night. It is the night before crossover day, which is now, uh, you may not be used to this yet, it's now on day 28 instead of day 30. Um, so some of these bills that we talk about today, uh, they may be on their last leg tomorrow unless they get resurrected in uh, true fashion in the House of just being stuck in another bill or stuck in another bill in the Senate. Um, but there's a chance that they some of them may be gone. So we're going to take a look at a few of the bills left that might make it across the finish line and talk about some stuff that's already going to make it over to the other side of the chamber. Um, so we got three topics for this week. Uh, for our first topic, we're going to talk about school choice and some of the school's choice legislation that is pending before the House and the Senate right now. Uh, we're going to talk about kind of the different areas in which school choice operates, uh, particularly important as a, uh, a person who is very much in favor of school vouchers. Betsy DeVos has uh, recently become the Secretary of Education in the Trump administration. For our second topic this week, we're going to talk about a tax reform package in House Bill 329. And for this segment, we're going to be joined by Wesley Tharp. He's the research director at the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. Uh, He's somebody who knows tax policy way better than we do. So he's going to walk us through how that bill works, what some of the pluses and some of the minuses are, um, and what we can look forward to as that bill is moved out of the House and into the Senate. Um, and then for our third topic, we're going to stick with tax policy this week. It's a it's a big week for uh, analysis from GBPI. We're going to talk about tax expenditures in the state legislature. This is another piece of tax policy um, where the state basically uses tax policy to support certain specific policy goals or policy outcomes. Uh, we're going to talk about two that are kind of interesting that are moving through the legislative process right now and talk about some of the other tax expenditures that uh, are already in law and how we can do better about deciding whether or not that spending is good spending or not. Uh, But we're going to start, as we always do, with some news. So, Luke, what did you see in the news this week? Well, I think the biggest thing I've seen is that the Russia story with the Trump administration has been growing pretty significantly. Um, I think last night, and like we said, we were, uh, we're recording this on Thursday. Uh, we found out that Jeff Sessions, the attorney general of the United States of America had contact with the Russians during the Trump campaign. Now he claims that this was not affiliated with the campaign and his role as a campaign surrogate. And it was actually a, uh, thing regarding his role on armed services committee in the Senate. Uh, however, um, several news outlets have contacted every other member of the armed services committee. And they all claim that they have never contacted the Russian government as part of their armed services role. So that's, uh, you know, put some holes in his argument that he was just wearing a different hat when he was talking to them. Uh, this is pretty significant, though, because during his confirmation hearing, Jeff Session was asked by Al Franken if he was aware of contact by the Trump campaign uh, with Russia. And through Jeff Sessions' answer, he was pretty clear in saying that there was no such contact and he was unaware and that he had not had any contact. Um, So if that is taken to its logical conclusion, it's pretty clear that Jeff Session perjured himself in front of a Senate committee. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how that develops and if it's, you know, possible to prove that his conversation was regarding the campaign. Um, if, if it is, then it looks like, uh, our attorney general is in some pretty deep trouble. Um, now he did recuse himself from the ongoing investigation today. Um, that is true. So a friend of mine was asking me what the impact of this was going to be. And, and I, this was before he recused himself. I thought that he might end up doing that, but I wasn't 
entirely sure. But the, the thing that sort of sticks with me is that there's this just like continuing drip, drip, drip around Russia for the Trump administration. And it's all kind of fuzzy and Trump can kind of take advantage of that to, to defend himself in front of the media. But um, it is just sort of this like ongoing story that kind of feels like the email story from the campaign. Um, and I would imagine if this continues to go on, particularly if Sessions ends up in some hot water, um, it's going to take away from his ability to, you know, try to get back on track promoting his agenda and whatever they can do in the Congress. Um, right. And, and this is where I have to give my routine advice to every single presidential administration uh, in history and all in the future, which is never appoint a special prosecutor because it never works out well. Uh, that's how we got the Monica Lewinsky scandal uh, through a, a special prosecutor looking into Whitewater and then leading into that. And that's uh, also how we got most of Iran-Contra as well. And so... And for uh, Yahasa Cards fans, that is what took out President Walker as well. So special prosecutors are when you know that uh, it's gotten real because uh, we're pretty close to that point of where it's really necessary that we have a special prosecutor because it's quite clear that there's, there, as, as our president would say, there's something going on there and we need to look into it. Yeah, I was giving Luke some grief today. The first 36 presidents listened to his advice, but Nixon was the first one to appoint a special prosecutor, and we also know how that ended for him. Um, so for my news this week, uh, it was just a, a cringeworthy moment out of Betsy DeVos. We're going to talk a little bit about her in our first segment, but Betsy DeVos uh, was a part of a meeting that Trump had with leaders of historically black colleges and universities. And uh, through Department of Education, she released a statement where she said HBCUs have done um, have done this since their founding. They started from the fact that there were too many students in America who did not have equal access to education. They saw that the system wasn't working and that there was an absence of opportunity. So they took it upon themselves to provide a solution. And she said, sort of sticking to her primary area of policy knowledge. She said HBCUs are the real pioneers when it comes to school choice, just completely ignoring the fact that HBCUs sort of came to be because of segregation and because of black students not being allowed in colleges with white students. It was just, I would not be surprised if she just literally didn't know. Yeah, she might not have known. She, she tried to walk it back. Um, she basically said that HBCUs still remain at the forefront of opening doors that had previously been closed, but she got a lot of grief in the DC media, in the education media, um, you know, Twitter went nuts as expected, just like, well, no, I, I don't, don't just, uh, be up there in the beltway, man. A lot of people in Georgia had a lot of things to say about that. Cause, uh, we've got several HBCUs here, so uh, there's a lot of people who were pretty unhappy with those comments uh, down here in Georgia as well. So uh, maybe maybe it's Betsy that needs to get out of the Beltway and actually go to some HBCUs and learn a little bit of history. Um, but to to move on to our first topic this week, we're going to talk about uh, school choice in the legislature this session. Um, so there are three bills that we're going to look at primarily. Um, there's a fourth bill that I think is is worth considering, but there's three that deal with uh, basically increasing access to private schools for students who e- either are currently in private schools or students who might come out of public schools and go to private schools. Um, two of these are in the House, House Bill 217 and House Bill 236. These are bills that sort of address the same issue. Um, they talk about the uh, student the student scholarship program, which is a program established a few years ago that allows people to make donations from uh, you know from their own pocket, either a corporation or or a private individual, to make a donation to a student scholarship organization. And if they make a donation, they can have that donation offset in their tax liability to the state. Now, as of right now, the state will allow contributions up to $58 million that would receive uh, the tax break. And typically, basically almost every year since it's been in existence, um, that break, that cap is met on the very first day that it's available, usually January 1st or early in the year. Um, so there are two bills 
217 and 236 that increase that cap. 236 increases the cap from 58 million to 150 million and allows for an annual increase of seven and a half million after that. Uh, 217 raises the cap to only 100 million. Now, I think 217 is the one to look at more closely. That's one that's already passed the House. Uh, 216, 236, uh, which has the bigger increase to 150 million, that one looks like it's dead for now. Um, the other bill worth looking at is Senate Bill 68, and this bill uh, goes further than what House Bill 217 does. It allows for um, parents to basically take the funds that are allotted for their children if they were to enroll in public school and use those to pay for private educational services. And, and there's a wide range of services that can be used, but the primary use would be to use that money to pay for private school tuition. Um, this is a wider range bill because it is open to all students who are eligible to enroll in Georgia public schools. So this includes kids that would be eligible to enroll in public schools, but are currently homeschooled or are currently in private school. Um, and it's the way it's structured. It, it is all students are eligible, but there's a cap in the first year with half of a percent of the school population. Then the second year, the cap increases to one and a half percent. But then in year three, the cap is basically lifted. Um, so the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute took a look at the costs of this program, um, and they estimated that in the first year, it would cost over $38 million, a relatively modest sum because it applies to a relatively modest um, number of students. In the second year, it increases to $116 million. And then in the third year, when the cap is lifted completely, the cost of this program could reach $710 million, basically seven times the cost increase between year two and year three. Um, so just to get started, Luke, those are kind of the bills that are out there. Um, let's talk a little bit about the politics of school choice. This is something that Democrats at times can be divided on. Um, but, you know, at other times there are and then there are certain segments of the Democratic Party that push back really hard against these school choice proposals. They think of them as eroding public education um, and, a, and a danger to kids that would remain in public schools. What do you think of some of the politics of this, um, you know, in, in the House and the Senate? Well, I think it was pretty interesting because I'm going to focus a lot of my comments on HB uh, 217 because I actually... Uh, was in the chamber for when they were talking about it. So I kind of actually got to see a lot of the debate for that one. And since, you know, we're getting up close to crossover day and bills that, um, you know, are going to move are usually already on the move and the other two haven't been moving as fast, I think this is probably the one that has the most chance of getting to the governor's desk. Um, the Republicans in their, you know, comments and the debate and what you know, they're put how they were pushing 217 was actually quite focused on the money issue of like how much uh, money that schools would lose because of this program. And the other thing, which you mentioned earlier as well, is just how incredibly fast that this effort like runs out. I mean, this that this, you know, uh, tax don't how, how, how do you explain the donations? Because and this is what? It's you. You make a donation to a, a student scholarship organization that's approved by the state, and then that donation is deducted from your tax liability. Right. So the deduction limit—that's what I was trying to get to. The deduction limit, like you said, like it almost immediately is you know hit, and like as soon as they open it up to where you can give to this, it is like just emptied out and totaled up like extremely quickly. So with that in mind. I feel like out of the things that we're probably going to get from this, you know, Republican-led government, this is one of the least dangerous things they should do. Now, that's not a reason that I think Democrats should go out and, like, campaign for this legislation. But in the scheme of things, it's a minor change, um, and there's a lot of demand for it. So it's, it's hard to tell. Um, it definitely got some Democratic support, but it was mostly from your usual 
uh, private school supporters like Erica Thomas and um, Valencia Stovall, um, both representatives in the state house. So I think politically with this, this is not something that like has the same fervor that the OSD legislation did. Um, and it's compared, especially to the other two bills that are up, it's pretty minor. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, some, some of those Democrats are going to make the argument that they've continued to struggle. Some of the students in some of these low income communities have continued to struggle in the public schools, the public schools, as we've talked about in the entire debate around school turnaround, some of these schools have been struggling for a very long time. And so they kind of see this student scholarship program, which provides a voucher to students to get out of their public school and go to a private school. Um, They kind of see that as a lifeline that, you know, maybe can help students immediately. But there's there's a problem with this, and this came out. Um, it came to my attention earlier this week with an article in the Upshot, which is the New York Times sort of economics blog um, and like policy wonk blog. It outlined some of these really negative research findings that have come out about school voucher programs around the country, and these are voucher programs that are designed in very similar ways to the one that Georgia has, and you know at least through this legislation wants to expand. Um, There's been three different studies that have come out that have looked at voucher programs in Indiana, Louisiana, and Ohio, and all three have come up with very negative results. Um, In Indiana, they found that voucher students who transfer to private schools experienced significant losses in achievement and had no improvement in their reading test scores. Um, In Louisiana, they had a study that focused on public elementary school students, uh, but this was kind of a it's shocking finding. It said that public elementary school students who started at the 50th percentile in their math test scores, so they're about at you know 50% among the distribution of students who take these tests, um, and then they used a voucher to transfer from their public school to a private school, dropped to the 26th percentile in a single year, just one year. Um, in Ohio, similar results, students who used vouchers to attend private schools fared worse academically compared to closely matched peers attending public schools. These results were worse in math again. Um, the Ohio one is particularly interesting when you're thinking about this because there's sort of two ways to think about the impact of a voucher program. The first is The first and most obvious is that a voucher program is going to open up a voucher spot and you're going to get some money to go to a private school and you're going to take that voucher and you're going to go to a private school. The second impact that I think is relatively overlooked is that a voucher program can create some competitive pressure on a public school that doesn't want to lose students to the voucher program. So if you have a voucher program that is you know, specifically designed to be open to low-income students who are in schools that you know have chronically low test scores. Um, schools are going to know that some of their students might be eligible for this voucher program and be able to leave their school, leave the public school, and go to the private school. So this is sort of known as sort of like a competition factor. The results in Ohio demonstrated that because of the voucher program, public school students that stay in the public school end up actually doing better than they would have if there was no voucher program. The thing that was really shocking is that public school students who were eligible for the voucher program, they take the voucher, they move to a private school, they're the ones that actually do worse. Um, so you you know, the intention is to... Well, is there any indication of why that is? Well, yeah, there's some, some reasons we can get into... Um, just to note, though, on the research, because there's a lot of conversation around what research findings are good, what research findings are bad. Um, Martin West, who's a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, he calls the negative effects in Louisiana as large as any as he's ever seen. Um, not just in voucher studies, but in sort of any uh, education research program that, that they've looked at consistently in the research. So the real question is why? The question that you ask, why would uh, students who go to 
public school go to private schools on a voucher program do worse um matt barnum who's a columnist at the 74 he outlines sort of seven theories of why the results in these voucher studies are not good and we're going to link to them there's a few that stood out to me um one of the ones that stands out in terms of from the perspective of a private school is that private schools haven't been um, subject to this movement around accountability. And this movement around accountability for schools is basically the No Child Left Behind program that started in the Bush administration in 2001. Um, public schools, were, I mean, private schools were exempt from that program. And so there's a uh, professor not a professor, there's a researcher, Mike Dynarski, uh, who is at the Brookings Institution, and he says that part of what he thinks has happened is that public schools have gotten better because of test-based accountability programs like No Child Left Behind. Private schools have been exempt from those things, and they've never improved. So the quality of public schools has gotten better, while the quality of private schools has not improved at all. Um Another piece of this is that some of the some voucher programs require that students take the state-based test, the state-based achievement test, um, that the the same test that kids in public schools take. But private schools don't necessarily have education standards that are lined up with the um, you know lined up with that test. And that has, at times, you know, if there's been criticism of the test-based accountability movement and No Child Left Behind, it's been that teachers are teaching to the test. Um, But if the test is a good test and the standards are meant to ready your skills to take that test, then it makes sense that if you don't have standards aligned to those tests, those kids are going to perform worse in private schools. Yeah, that's that's very interesting um, that that's happened, and and so here's here's just a devil's advocate question because just for the record, I don't you know, I I am a supporter of uh, you know public schools. That's my preference. Um, so, but just to play devil's advocate, is it possible that the public schools? look like they're doing better because the private schools are harder to measure because they're not doing the standardized testing? Um, so that's, that's a great question. To some, to some extent, I think, I think not. So the, um, the study out of Ohio comes from a conservative think tank, the Fordham Institute. They are relatively cautious in how, um, you know, in how much you read into their, results because the design of the program is not, you know, some of the most rigorous research designs. I mean, their analysis focused on changes in, in test scores. Um, the, the rebuttal to that though, seems to be, um, that even if you aren't missing, I mean, even if you're missing some of the results on graduation and if you're looking at certain student populations and you don't have what's called a longitudinal data set, um, then you can't necessarily follow them all the way through the process and see how they were, what their outcomes were after graduation, um, you know, whether or not they went to college, how they did in college, things like that. Some of these voucher programs are relatively new. So I think to a certain extent, um, it would be difficult to make that kind of determination in some of these studies, but test scores are associated with other factors generally, even though um, those studies may not include all of those factors. It's, it's not necessarily right to just dismiss test scores because other things are, um, are not you know, readily available based on the data that you have. Yeah. Well, Let's let's move on to another piece of this that we can talk about that a little bit more, and that's the uh, religious element of this. Right. So there is another bill uh, being considered in the legislature. I think that this one is probably not going anywhere. It's it's House Bill two thirty. Um, this bill was heard in the Higher Education Committee on on February twenty second. 
And it basically doesn't allow for discrimination in private school admission or employment in private schools that are a part of these scholarship programs. Um, They didn't talk directly about this, but one of the issues that would be um, at issue here is that there are certain protections against discrimination in federal law. Um, Federal law doesn't provide protections against discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. And part of what particularly the uh, individual education account, the, the bill Senate bill that would allow money to go to every private school student, if they're eligible to attend public schools, some of that money would go to religious schools. And I think that there is a question of whether or not a religious school would be allowed to discriminate against a student who was LGBT um, and keep them from attending their school or not hire certain staff based on sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, The other piece of the religious element to this is there, there is an ongoing lawsuit right now. There are these old provisions in a lot of state constitution, state constitutions called the Blaine amendment. And it keeps state funding from going directly to uh, religious institutions, religious schools, for instance. Um, and there is a fight right now. There's an ongoing lawsuit and we can link to some of the details, um, where there's a challenge to the existing student scholarship program, um, based on the idea that some of these students are attending, uh, religious schools and they are getting, uh, money from the scholarship organizations to go to those schools. I mean, the only thing I, I the only thing I can say about this is that it's just, it's a pretty apparent to me that, uh, this money should not be going to religious schools. So even if they don't discriminate, I think there's just different standards and a different curriculum. So that's, that's my two cents on this. Um, yeah, I, I think it is going to be an ongoing, issue i mean i mean betsy devos is someone who wants to you know along with the trump administration push through larger school voucher programs on on a national level and there's definitely interest at the state level of um putting through expanded voucher programs that would presumably provide access to religious schools um it's a, it's a tough issue, particularly once you get into the discrimination elements of it. Um, the, the thing that I think is, is worth having some pause about is that the, the findings on vouchers right now are not good. So the, so the argument that it's a slam dunk, that choice is going to put kids in better schools, which I think would need to be a consideration if you were going to consider sending any of that money to religious schools, um, your your outcomes would have to be better. And it's not even clear right now that the outcomes on voucher programs are better. Um, the other piece of this is that a lot of the effort right now is, is on the side of vouchers. The research findings aren't good. But in some highly regulated charter school environments, which is the other piece of school choice we haven't talked much about, um, there are positive findings, particularly in the very well-regulated market out of Boston. There's other schools, um, particularly in urban areas that have made advancements with sort of like really intense curriculums and really, you know, really intense student experience that is meant to provide a lot of supports, but be very challenging to students. Um, some of those have had success. And so it'll be interesting to me at least to see is does the choice movement move in the direction of charter schools? Um, there is another charter bill that we haven't talked much about, but we could get to that one another time um, or does it move because partially because of DeVos and Trump in the direction of vouchers? Um, well, I think it's going to move to vouchers just because base. the Republicans have the votes to do it and they don't really care what the results are. It's an ideological position that you should have choice for them. So, I mean, a report could come out tomorrow that, you know, private schools make people lose a grade worth of reading level, but they will still say everybody deserves choice and we got to have some choice in our school system. So, you know, I just don't feel like 
it'll matter in the short term. Maybe in the long term, these reports will matter, but in the short term, I don't think it will. I mean, I think I would look to business groups to see how they react. I mean, I mean, part of the reason that business has been so active in education policy in recent years is that to them, the key is workforce development. And if you're you know, deliberately putting students in academic environments where they're going to do worse, which the voucher findings suggest, um, the business groups might have something to say about that. Um, but I think we'll wrap, we'll wrap that discussion right there and we'll move on to our second topic this week, which is going to be the package of tax changes that are being considered um, in the legislature right now. They are being considered in uh, House Bill 329. Uh, it passed the House with very little debate on Wednesday of this week. Um, Speaker Ralston was actually the only person to ask a question and it was kind of a, it wasn't a real question. It was kind of a rhetorical question. But when uh, Chairman Powell presented this bill, uh, Speaker Ralston asked him if this was a tax cut and Powell said yes. And he said, all right, so we're starting the day off with a tax cut for Georgians. And Powell sort of nodded and left the well. The key here is that this is not necessarily a tax cut for everyone. And so uh, to take a look at this bill, we're going to bring in Wesley Tharp from the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. I recorded a conversation with him earlier. Yeah, my big question going into this is one that I've heard from a lot of other Democrats around the state, which is uh, a good amount of Democrats voted for this bill. So with you saying, like you said, you know, that's not really a tax break for everyone. And it, um, you know, a lot of people don't understand this bill kind of came out of nowhere. So. Um, I'm hoping that this discussion kind of clarifies why some of the Democrats in the state house voted for this legislation and what, um, you know, potential benefits we could get from it. Yeah, I think Wesley does a good job of that. Uh, so here are, uh, me and Wesley from earlier, uh, this week. All right. Uh, so I'm now joined by Wesley Tharp. He is the research director at the Georgia budget and policy Institute and he is going to join us today to fill us in a little bit about this uh, tech, this package of tax changes um, that's in this bill that we discussed at the beginning of this segment. Um, so, Wesley, there are four changes in Georgia tax policy that are in House Bill 329. Could you just kind of briefly describe what those changes are? Sure, Kyle. It would be my pleasure. Um, as you said, there are really four key tenants to House Bill 329 one of which we view as uh, very concerning, and then the other three uh, we view quite positively as sound tax reforms. To take them one by one, uh, the core of the bill is uh, moving from Georgia's current graduated income tax rate structure with rates between 1% and 6% to a flat tax of 5.4%. That would be applied to, to all of folks' uh, taxable income. The other three, um, the first would be to create a non-refundable earned income tax credit, um, somewhat modeled as a federal version that would be set at a 10% match of the value of the of what people get from the federal credit. So, um, you know, theoret- or hypothetically, a Georgia family receiving a $3,000 credit from the federal EITC uh, would get a $300 credit from the Georgia EITC under this bill as long as it didn't spill over into a refund. Um, you know, it could at most zero out their tax liability for Georgia. <clears throat> uh, the third piece is indexing um, sort of the broadly available exemptions and deductions in Georgia's income tax, uh, the standard deduction, the personal exemption, and the dependent exemption for uh, people raising uh, children in the home. Those would be indexed to inflation. Um, this is really a, a kind of smart tax reform um, because it allows those um, those uh, benefits, what we sometimes refer to as the tax shield, um, because it's basically those things are shielding a certain amount of people's income from the income tax. It would allow those to, to grow very gradually um, year to year as the uh, cost of living grows. Um, that leaves the, the fourth component to the bill, which is really essentially the, the pay for um, or one of the main uh, pay for is in the bill is is along with along with uh, certain aspects of the way the flat tax works, and that is to close um, a very generous income tax loophole uh, that's referred by us and by others uh, to as the double deduction. Um, this is somewhat 
it sounds complex at first glance, but um, it's essentially that uh, people are allowed to deduct uh, their Georgia state income taxes on their Georgia um, income tax bill. Um, this is specifically for the, the subset of people who itemize their deductions, which is about a third of taxpayers. Um, and it's caused by the, the close linkage that uh, Georgia tax law has to federal tax law when it comes to how itemized deductions are treated. Uh, the, the bottom line is that this is something that only four states still allow. Um, you know, Georgia obviously being one of them, uh, it, it costs, um, you know, by some estimates, uh, about $500 million a year or more. Um, and so closing that loophole is something that uh, GBPI has advocated for for a long time, and we're, we're happy to see that in the bill. But as you know, um, we're focusing a lot of attention currently um, on the, the flat tax component of the bill because we think that that does pose um, some significant concern for Georgia families. Um, so y'all have a, a great brief on this that we'll link to in our show notes. Um, and in that brief, you kind of lay out who some of the, the winners and some of the losers are in this tax proposal in terms of who's going to pay more and who's going to mm-hmm. pay less um, from these tax changes. Can you just sort of lay out who you think this benefits and who you think might get harmed by this change? Sure. Well, um, there's kind of a lot of nuanced uh, changes going on in the bill particularly because of moving to a flat tax and creating an earned income tax credit at the same time. Um, in some ways, those two changes are, are ca- counteracting each other and, and, again, creating some, some kind of complex things going on for, for people at lower levels on the income ladder. Specifically, what I would say in terms of winners and losers is uh, the primary people who lose out from this bill are Georgians working in low-wage jobs uh, who do not have children. Um, you know, the, imagine a you know, single young man, early 20s, uh, you know, working full-time minimum wage. Uh, that kind of worker could see uh, a tax increase under this proposal by, you know, around $120, $150. It depends on exactly where you're looking at on the income scale. Um, that is because childless adults do not receive much benefit from uh, the federal earned income tax credit and therefore would would not receive much benefit from the Georgia earned income tax credit. In contrast, uh, low and moderate income uh, families with children um, would probably see a ma- um, would see a modest tax reduction under this package. Um, again, varying by family, this might be $100, $200, um, sort of amounts in that general range. <clears throat> and then the the biggest winner from the or or what I would say is that so there are kind of nuanced, inconsistent benefits for for working class. Uh, people in Georgia, but there would be a large consistent benefit for Georgians at the top of the income scale. That is because reducing that income tax rate to 5.4% would deliver disproportionate benefits to people who have the most taxable income. So, you know, people in the top, you know, 1%, 5%, 20% in Georgia uh, could see very large uh, annual tax reductions um, numbering in the thousands of dollars under this package. You mentioned in, in your lead-off to this that the the EITC component of this, it's a non-refundable mm-hmm. EITC. Can you explain the difference between a non-refundable and a refundable? I know this is kind of a, a dividing line between um, EITC policies in some states. And uh, for the non-refundable portion, do you think it loses some of its effectiveness on providing a better bottom-up tax credit or tax cut to low-income people because it's non-refundable? Sure, it's a great question. And, you know, I would say in that trying to educate uh, lawmakers and partners and just everyday uh, folks about the earned income tax credit, that when we start talking about refundability is when, you know, people's eyes naturally start to glaze over a little bit because it does sound like a very wonky subject at the outset. But, you know, the bottom line is that if a tax credit is refundable, it means that qualified taxpayers are able to claim the full value of the credit to which they qualify, even if it exceeds their income tax liability and spills over into a refund. So, for example, <clears throat> if a Georgia taxpayer um, pays in, you know, let's say $200, you know, to the system over the course of a year, um, you know, having wages withheld in his or her paycheck. Um, 
at the end of the year, if, if he or she was eligible for a $300 state EIGC, if it was refundable, um, they would be able to get, they would be able to not just zero out their income tax bill, but also to get that extra $100 spilling over into a refund. That is a really critical design component for um, people who are working but are doing so in very low-wage jobs um, who might, you know, only be, uh, who are paying significant sales taxes and property taxes and gas taxes, what have you, but may have very small income tax bills, um, you know, 50 or or $100 a year perhaps, that refundability component allows them to share in the benefits of an EITC. If it's non-refundable, as the Georgia proposal is, uh, the most that can happen is that someone's income tax bill for the state gets zeroed out. Um, and what I would say is creating a non-refundable credit would still be kind of a great win for many Georgia families and for um, sort of forward-looking tax policy in Georgia. Um, it would be something that would provide some modest benefit for a lot of people and would be something that uh, the state could build on over time, uh, perhaps as they um, sort of, as we developed a track record and they saw more benefits of the EITC working in practice and that kind of thing. Of the 26 states that have an earned income tax credit, um, there are four that have a non-refundable option uh, like what Georgia is currently debating. Um, but then there are a few other states who started with a non-refundable option and moved to the, 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 full, um, the full refundable version over time. Uh, and so, you know, we, we do think that's a very constructive part of the bill. Um, you know, we're, we're going to be continue, continuing to talk about its benefits as the, as the package evolves in the coming weeks. You mentioned that this, the way this EITC proposal is designed in this bill, it's tied as a percentage of the federal earned income tax credit. So if there are changes made on the federal level with the earned income tax credit, would there be sort of an automatic corresponding change in the state level version? Uh, for instance, I know previously both House Speaker Paul Ryan and former President Barack Obama had uh, both supported um, lowering the age for childless workers to qualify for the EITC to 21 and increasing the maximum credit for them to $1,000. Um, I'm not sure that that's on the table right now at the federal level, but if that change was to occur or some other changes in federal policy were to occur, do those automatically filter into what Georgia's policy would be? Absolutely. So of the of the 26 states plus D.C. that have an EITC, almost all of them um, sort of directly link their credit to the federal version by having um, the state version set at a at a percentage match of the federal credit, as I was describing earlier. And, and in some states, that's five percent and some it's 10 you know there's some where it's you know it's it's much larger but the the one of the core benefits of doing that is it it allows the credit to be very simple on the state level so adding a state eitc essentially adds one or two lines to the state income tax forms um that's in contrast to if we um, sort of went rogue and created a whole separate, you know, working family credit of some kind, in which case you'd have to, to kind of create a whole new administrative infrastructure on the state level of how that should work. Um, what I'm getting around to is, you know, that does mean that the state credit would um, ebb and flow as, you know, different reforms were enacted, if and when different reforms were enacted on the federal level, if it were to be cut um, by Congress, if it were to be expanded by Congress, that would uh, that would trickle down to the to the state version in Georgia. Um, honestly, with spe the specific reform being discussed over the last few years of expanding the credit uh, to cover workers without children, um, that would be, you know, really a major win, not, you know, not just because those workers would be um, eligible for additional uh, federal value and federal gain um, is that they would become um, eligible for that additional marginal gain from the state EITCs as well. Um, and so, um, you know, we're, we're working very hard right now to, to, to get a credit, um, you know, enacted here in Georgia because we think that the policy as, extend, as it stands today provi provides really sound benefits. Um, and to the extent that there are bipartisan um, reforms enacted in Congress, um, as Speaker Ryan and, and others have advocated, um, that, would, that would simply maximize the value of the Georgia credit long term. In your analysis of this 
Bill, you point out that the, there's a range of uh, fiscal estimates on this. Um, the state fiscal note says that it'll cost about $20 million, and there's a different estimate from the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, which is up in D.C., that says uh, the cost would be $154 million in lost revenue to the state. Um, do you have any thoughts on why those estimates are so different? Sure. Well, I'd, I'd say a couple of things. One is that it is, it's important to, I think, have a bit of context that um, Georgia's income tax brings in uh, roughly 45% of the state's total state funds, um, and specifically around $9 billion a year is brought in by the personal income tax. And so when you're when folks are trying to estimate um, the specific fiscal impact of what are really fairly sweeping income tax changes being proposed in this uh, in a package like this, you're always going to have a range of estimates, and those estimates can be um, are are very sensitive to to just slightly different assumptions that go into to kind of different models, if you will, um, and so having a you know, two estimates, one at 20 million, one at 100, uh, roughly 150 million dollars, um, is is actually a bit narrower of a range than it probably seems at first glance, simply because of the the scope and complexity of these sorts of tax changes. The second thing I would say um, is that both of these estimates come from very reliable sources. Um, you know, our Georgia actually does a very good job compared to a lot of states with developing fiscal notes. We have a very professional sort of third-party independent operation. Um, they, they have uh, proven very reliable over the years, and we rely on their numbers. Um, and then ITEP has been doing, you know, this sort of sophisticated analysis for uh, a couple of decades now um, in states around around the nation. And so um, we treat these estimates really as, as a, a fair range of, of probably what you're looking at with a bit of a floor and a ceiling um, on the potential cost to the state, but but both those numbers are, in our view, very trustworthy. Anything else you wanted to point out about this bill? I know I know GBPI has written a lot about um, how the the flat tax portion of this proposal probably isn't the best policy for Georgia going forward. Um, is there anything else worth considering for the listeners as we as we think about this bill? Well, one thing that we have been um, you know trying to to talk a lot about in the last few days, and and we've been trying to to educate people about is so far on the flat tax component, that 5.4% um, proposed flat rate, is I think a lot of um, lawmakers and commentators are really viewing that as a as a unified policy reform, um, going to a flat rate of 5.4%. But those are really two distinct policy choices. You know, going to a flat rate is one, and then cutting the rate to 54 is the other, and they don't necessarily have to move in tandem. Um, you know, as this package evolves down at the Capitol, you know, if 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 lawmakers are sort of um, you know in, in, insistent, if you will, or are, are absolutely firmly committed to to getting below six percent to cutting Georgia's top rate, they could do that if they wanted to within the state's longstanding graduated rate structure. Um, you know, getting below six percent doesn't absolutely require going to the flat rate. On the other hand, and just to so that we're talking about what we're talking about, going to the flat rate means that you're levying higher tax rates on those first few thousand dollars of income that people earn. Um, and so you're not just dropping the top rate on high levels of income, you're raising those lower rates on lower levels of income. And so that's where you get some of the, you, that's where you get the negative effects on, on low and moderate income working people. Um, and so I would just like to stress that there is sort of room for further discussion and um, analysis and, and, you know, looking at ways uh, to kind of perfect this package as, as, as it moves closer towards the finish line. And um, just to wrap up, um, so we're, we're pretty wonky here at Peach Pod, and, and one of my favorite reports to catch up on each year is your adding up the fiscal notes report. Um, <laughs> when, should we be looking for that one soon? Does that usually come out after session? So you're the one who reads that. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, in, in all seriousness, we do two of those every legislative session. One comes out right after uh, crossover day, so the, the day that bills have to pass from one side, one chamber to the other. Um, so we're going to be 
um, working very hard to get that out sometime next week. Um, uh, and then we do a second one um, at the end. Um, sometimes it's after uh, Sine die. Sometimes it's after um, the, the governor's uh, sort of window of whether or not to veto bills, depending on kind of how pricey things are and what the what exactly is going on. We, we sometimes vary when that one comes out. But there should be the first edition for Crossover Day coming out sometime soon. All right. Well, we're looking forward to it. Our, our listeners will have to suffer through listening to me talk about it. Uh, um, <laughs> well, Wesley, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and thanks to GBPI for all the good work that they do. Um, I think y'all's analysis really does um, make it easier to follow what's going on, particularly on all of the fiscal issues in the state. Um, and we talk about y'all's work a lot on the show, so we really appreciate it. Yeah, Kyle, we really appreciate that. All right. So Wesley, thanks again for joining us. Um, with that, we are going to move on to our third topic this week. Um, our third topic this week is, you know, we're staying in the area of tax policy, but we're going to talk about uh, tax breaks, tax expenditures that the state often uses to, uh, you know, basically develop certain or push certain policy initiatives, uh, either to develop an industry or to sustain an industry or to give breaks to preferred individuals, corporations. Um, there's there's a lot of different uses for these kinds of policies. Um, there are two being considered that are. Uh, probably important to the debate that are being considered right now. One of these is House Bill 125, and that gives you a tax break on repairs to very expensive boats, things like yachts. Um, This bill passed the House already before crossover day, 152 to 14. So it's already moved over to the other other chamber and might be considered as the uh, session hits its home stretch. Um, Another bill, House Bill 145, this is a bill that renews a former tax break that we used to have on jet fuel. And this is sort of colloquially known as the the Delta tax break. Um, If you're familiar with sort of the corporate environment in Atlanta, Delta is one of the major companies in the city. It employs a lot of people who live in the Atlanta metro region. And during the recession, they got really hit hard by, uh, you know, basically people flying less and in the slowing economy. So the legislature uh, gave what was really supposed to be kind of like a one-time fix uh, to kind of help Delta get through and kind of weather the the recession. Um, this bill, this tax break for jet fuel for Delta is back. Um, and it would basically reinstate, you know, the, the tax break that Delta had before, um, and sort of give them the same benefit that they had when uh, the state was interested in helping them recover from the recession. That one is one that's on the general calendar right now. Um, So it is something that could be considered tomorrow. It won't definitely be considered, but if you look at the rules calendar, which is the, you know, what is definitely going to be considered there are, there aren't a ton of bills right now. Um, So I wouldn't be surprised to see that one on the calendar tomorrow. Um, especially since it is the last day that bills have to cross from one side of the session, one side of the the body to the other. Um, so, Luke, what do you what do you think about you know these these kind of tax break policies in general? I mean, there's there's pluses and minuses to them. What do you think about how the state does this kind of business? Well, first thing I'd say is that there's so many of them that I truly doubt that anyone knows all of them. Um, I kind of feel like not even the people on the committee have a good conception of all of these tax breaks because what ends up happening sometimes is that, you know, they'll they'll pass a certain tax break and it not come back up for several years. And so it kind of just like fades out of the consciousness of all the legislators. And then like, you know, it, the sunset comes up and they're like, oh my God, like what is this tax break? And, and they have to look at it. So I've actually heard uh, rumors that, uh, uh, you know, Chairman Powell of the Ways and Means Committee is considering, uh, you know, wanting to do an analysis of every single tax break as it comes up. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but that is something I've, I've heard, and I'll be interested to watch and see if that ends up developing. Um, on the Delta tax specifically, I think that was something that was probably appropriate during the recession. Um but it's it's pretty hard 
to tell if this is like the reason why Delta stays in the state of Georgia. Um, I don't know at what risk it, we are for them to leave if we don't bring this tax break back. Um, it was pretty interesting to me how this tax break kind of went away, which was during uh, the religious liberty fight in 2014. 14. That's when the tax break kind of went away because Delta came out pretty strongly against the legislation. Um, so that was definitely not coincidental in my mind. So the fact that it's coming back now, I find is very interesting when also the religious liberty bill is pretty suppressed in the, in the state house and Senate. Um, but in general, I mean, you got to take these things on a case by case basis. I think they all need to have sunsets. Um, I think we probably have too many right now. Um, but you know, I can be hypocritical too, because I was extremely critical of them getting rid of the tax break that you received if you bought a electric vehicle in the state of Georgia. I was a big supporter of that. So, I mean, for, you know, people in the yacht industry, I'm sure they're really excited about HB 125 that, you know, would make it cheaper for them to operate in you know, potentially bring more yacht repairs to the state of Georgia, which I don't know like what the yacht repair market is like, but, um, I wish I did now based on this bill and to see if, uh, this would actually help or is it this just some kind of handout, um, to the, the yacht caucus? (laughs) Um, the, yeah, the, the stated goal of, particularly of the yacht tax break, is to try to develop a yacht repair industry in Georgia. It's something that I think is is more, you know, the, the industry is a little more settled in Florida than it is in Georgia. And so I imagine the idea is to try to wrestle some of that business away, bring that, that, uh, that industry north uh, and kind of take some of it away from our friends in Florida. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if that's the case. I mean, it's interesting to me when I, when I think about the sort of the larger political debate over this, I can remember there was a lot of, uh, outrage at the Obama administration, uh, for things like their investments in clean energy, uh, companies, particularly ones that were trying to develop new technologies, um, there was the infamous Solyndra company that I think got a bunch of tax breaks at the federal level and then went under. Um, and it was really easy for Republicans in opposition to say, well, uh, you know, why is Obama wasting our tax money on these ventures that are, that are not going to succeed? Here's one that failed. Let's put it on Fox News and talk about it all the time. Um, and yet at the tax, at the state level, this is basically the same practice to take tax dollars and try to pick winners and losers in a, in, you know, in an effort to build up industries or, uh, you know, support certain businesses. Um, yeah. I mean, it's worked, you know, I mean, in the movie, in the movie industry, this definitely works. And in that industry specifically, you really lose a lot of business, uh, once you take the tax break away. Um, so, I mean, I guess I'd be curious too, like what exactly we're signing up for. If we bring in this yacht tax break, is this something that's just going to be permanently around? Because if we build this industry, are we suddenly going to become, you know, really concerned that the yacht <laughs> repair industry is going to disappear from the state of Georgia if we don't keep the tax break? You know, that's that's sort of the rabbit hole we get into because that that's definitely the position that's articulated with the movie tax credits that if we don't keep them, then the movie industry is just going to dry up and leave Georgia. Um, so yeah, that, I guess, I guess that's my real question. And it's a shame that there's not a lot, there's not enough public information on like how much these tax credits are expected to bring in and how long will we have to do continue these tax breaks to get the benefits. And I guess, I guess what annoys me about all these tax breaks that we do is that they're so industry specific and it's hard to tell how much your average Georgian actually benefits from any individual tax break. You know, obviously like the electric car tax break is one that just about any Georgian could have taken advantage of. So like those, and yeah, I harp on that one because you know, that one seems pretty straightforward. It's something that everyone can benefit from potentially, um, because, you know, hybrid and electric cars have become far more affordable. Whereas, like, yachts, like, I don't even know how many people in the state of Georgia own a yacht. 
<laughs> you know, like it can't be that many. I imagine Arthur Blank has a yacht. That's true. Although I don't know that. I don't know. Um, yeah, so the, the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute pointed out um, in their review of last year's state budget that since 2012, 19 states, including Alabama, Florida, Tennessee, and Texas have either created a new tax break review process or improved upon existing ones. Um, and they note that following the lead of those states, uh, states that are not, you know, like crazy liberal states, they're, they're ones that we compete with for business and ones that are ideologically like our state, um, you know, that can help us ensure that when we invest in an industry, we really know what we're getting out of it. So that we know if we're employing a lot of Georgians in, for instance, in the film industry, and it does a lot to spur development and growth and particularly in like rural communities that haven't grown and sort of, you know, have lost a lot of their economic power, those investments might be worth making. Others, particularly like this yacht tax credit, it might be better to take that money and put it in uh, public schools or other things that could do more for Georgia's economy on a sort of on a broader base level. So, so the one thing that I would close with is there is a 174 page report. It's really great reading on the Georgia government website. It's the Georgia tax expenditure report. Um, and it's put together by folks at Georgia state university. And it does outline every single tax expenditure that we have in law. Um, and gives a cost estimate to the best of their ability to see, uh, you know, what those things are costing us. It's not a, it's not a cost benefit thing. It's just literally, this is how much money we think we're foregoing by having this policy. Um, there are some interesting ones that are, you know, I, th- I think I, I doubt anyone knows that we subsidize some of these things. Um, there is a credit for operating a Coliseum, I'm not sure what Coliseum this is, uh, but it costs us $2 million a year. There is a credit for cigars for patients at the Georgia War Veterans Home. Um, That's one that costs less than a million dollars a year, probably not very much at all, but it is something that is on the books. Um, There's a credit for historic rehabilitation. There is the former credit for the zero emission vehicles, and there is a credit for the sale of pipe organs. so there are little gems all over this report um, that are that I didn't know that we had policies on the book to support those things. Um, those are relatively cheap. It's not like I don't know that they're worth eliminating, uh, particularly, you know. Um, I, no, the the bigger question is like, why do we have those? Like, who was who was the person that made the arguments? Like, you know, what we need pipe organ tax credit. That's what we really need. Cut. That's what that's what will get Georgia to where it needs to be. Well, the ancient Roman lobbyists did a great job. They were on good. The Coliseum tax credit. That was that was great work by the Romans. Um, so with that, I think we'll we'll wrap for the week and we'll uh, go to some end notes. Luke, what is your end note for this week? Uh, my end note is uh, I you know recanting an earlier statement of mine is that session has like heated up and gotten more interesting. So, um, I apologize to everyone in the past for saying it was boring this session. Um, there's been some good bills and good debate. So that's just sort of my end note. And then going forward, um, there's a really interesting bill and that's, uh, that's being kind using that word to describe it that has popped up in really like the, just the past like day or so, which is HB 515, which is being rammed through pretty quickly by a uh, Johnny Cogwell. And it's a, a bill that would redistrict house district 40 and uh, 111, I believe. And basically it, it just seems like uh, blatantly that they are like, Oh, we're worried about this district. Cause it kind of went a little bit more democratically than last time. So let's just change the lines to make it safer. Like I haven't really heard a good argument besides that for why, um, you know, they're doing it. Interesting. I I hadn't kept up with that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's developing. So, it's come out. It's come out pretty quick. Uh, it's if they get it through today or tomorrow, crossover day today. By the time you hear this, uh, that that will certainly be a fast track. 
Um, my endnote for this week is um, if you've been paying attention to national politics, you've seen that there have been rallies and town halls uh, where there's been a lot of pressure put on Republican congressmen and senators, particularly as it relates to their efforts to repeal Obamacare, but also kind of more generally asking you know, the Congress to be a check on President Trump on, you know, a variety of issues that we've talked about and that, uh, you know, you've probably seen in the news. But one of the things, one of the craziest things that came out of this was Marco Rubio uh, was asked in an interview and was quoted by Politico saying that he didn't want to have town halls because people were going to heckle and yell at him. Um, and I thought this was funny. It it made its way around the D.C. press um, hey, he's, he's honest. Then, he's honest. Yeah, he is being honest. Uh, you know, he was pointed out for hypocrisy, though, saying, you know, claiming the Tea Party movement was, you know, this this real movement that needed to be listened to. And the Tea Party used a lot of these same kinds of tactics. But um, on uh, his little podcast, uh, John Dickerson, who's the host of Face the Nation, he outlined the reason why we need to be a little bit more protective of, you know, of town halls being a positive experience, one in which people can you know, put forth their opinions and really give their representatives an opportunity to hear them. So we're going to let John Dickerson take you home this week. Uh, here's John on the need to protect the town hall, and we will talk to you next week. We need to save the town hall. They're too important to be left to mere partisans. There are two ways to do this. First, Republicans need to stop ducking town hall meetings. It's a basic requirement of the job to stand up and explain what you're doing to the people in whose name you are doing it. This goes, of course, for both parties. So vulnerable Democratic senators who are down in the root cellar need to come out into the light. It's not enough for a lawmaker to just show up, but doing so demonstrates respect and an intention to listen and explain. We need more of that in politics. In return, opponents cannot let town halls turn into a partisan punishment exercise. Holler and shout, sure, but liberals can't complain about Donald Trump's breaking of norms and rules and then break those norms in their public behavior. Those who don't attend town halls should resist turning them into blunt weapons to beat up on the other team. Resist next time you want to forward a selectively edited clip that makes a lawmaker look foolish or that just shows them being yelled at. Otherwise, town halls will become to be seen as a toxic mess and politicians will pay no penalty for ducking them. Or simply attending a town hall itself will be seen as such an act of bravery that everyone will forget to pay attention to whether any of the politicians' answers made sense or if they had any answers at all. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, you can share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. It really helps other people find our show. Our interns this week are Alana Pierce and Courtney Clark, and we will talk to you next week. Take care, y'all.